There has to be some common sense. Yes, sir, they have the car stopped in Tampa Ranch, Michael We still don't know who pulled the trigger. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. I'm your host, retired NYPD Sergeant Bill Cannon, 27-year veteran of the NYPD. And today we have a pretty interesting show. You know, despite the bit of the gag order in the Brian Koberger Idaho quadruple murder case, of course, with Ethan Chapin, Zana Canodal, Kaylee Goncalves, and Madison Mogan, we don't like to keep them as anonymous individuals. They're the real victims of this case. Despite the gag order, new information keeps coming out. It's seemingly from unnamed sources who are leaking information to certain broadcast stations. And one of the interesting things that recently came out, and it's from Dan Abrams, who I have a lot of respect for. I think he's a hell of a good reporter and a fair reporter. Someone is a criminologist is saying that um, he believes that Brian Koberger planted the sheath for the K-bar knife and left it, purposely left it on the bed where um, Madison Mogan and Kaylee Gonsalves were found slaughtered to death. And we're going to listen to that, that video. And many people, even when I discuss this case and we talk about the evidence, many people want to believe that Brian Koberger is this you know, this man, well, he is a mass murderer based on killing four people at once, if in fact he did it. And again, we always have to say he's innocent till proven guilty. But he's like this mastermind of murder. And if there is a mastermind of murder, I've never met him or her in my police career. And we're going to discuss some of the mistakes, the big mistakes, if he you want to believe he's a mastermind of murder that he made that were really elementary and also things that you cannot prevent if you kill someone with a knife and in this case kill four different people. So I, I, again, I religiously read almost all of the chat on my site and I see a lot of you folks really do believe that, you know, potentially like this criminologist, he could have planted this sheath and, did it to throw the police off. That's a hell of a lot to expect someone. And we're going to get more into it, what killing four people with a knife would have done to him physically, besides emotionally. So, and we'll go over that, whether or not that's a possibility or whether we think that's that's true, whether he purposefully left that knife, knife sheath there. And with me tonight, I'm glad I'm not running solo tonight. I have retired NYPD sergeant, and I tricked you a little bit. He was on he was on in the window earlier. Uh, retired NYPD sergeant and professor of criminal justice at Albertus Magnus College in New Haven, Connecticut. And with me tonight is Mike Geary. Welcome to the show, Mike. Billy, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure, Mike. I would like you to just comment a bit, and then we'll get to the video on it, on whether you believe that Brian Koberger 
purposefully left the sheath there to throw off the investigation? Yeah, my opinion, definitely not. Absolutely not. Under any circumstances, if he was that bright a killer, like the kind of killer you might read about in, in a novel, a real mastermind, uh, you know, genius IQ. No, he was none of those things. He was a rookie at killing. It was his first, uh, hopefully it was his first and only uh, homicide he ever uh, committed. But he made so many mistakes. And the idea that he purposely did this to throw off the authorities, uh, perhaps they, he, uh, the idea would be that he would throw it off the authorities and think that maybe someone from the Marines did it because the K-Bar uh, sheath had uh, the Marine Corps Eagle Globe and Anchor on it. Uh, no, absolutely not. Under any circumstances do I think he, he did this purposely. This was accidental and he just forgot about it because of the uh, the the, uh, the killing and everything that was going on, hearing other noise in the, in the home. Uh, he was a busy violent person, blood pumping, adrenaline pumping, and that was an oversight. 100%. I'm going to get to the video because we got a lot we can discuss about it. This is Dan Abrams. I believe it was last night. A new theory surfaced this week in the case of the Idaho student murders I find incredibly interesting. It's about probably the single most important piece of evidence in the case, a knife sheath discovered at the crime scene which allegedly has suspect Brian Koberger's DNA on it. The theory is one I, I just hadn't even considered that might have been intentionally left there by Koberger to throw off investigators. The knife sheath looked like this, both with USMC imprinted on it, along with the U.S. Marine Corps Eagle Globe and Anchor insignia. This theory comes from a number of people, but most recently from criminal profiler John Kelly. It goes like this that Koberger left the sheath on purpose and that the military references were no accident, that they were a ploy to send investigators on a hunt for someone else, someone in the military perhaps, someone other than Koberger. To further this claim, Kelly calls this staging 101, perhaps a ruse learned from Koberger's doctoral studies in criminal justice. Kelly claims a, a normal reaction for someone who had just used a knife would be to return it to its sheath. And the DNA found may have just been an oversight. It's a theory also suggested by British criminology professor David Wilson. That seems to be a remarkably clumsy move. Or a remarkably clever move, because one of the things that's really struck me about the person that's been arrested and accused of this is he, he is intelligent and high functioning. So would a highly skilled, intelligent, um, student who was teaching criminology, a PhD student, have made such a basic yeah, error? Can... Well, look, the guy was clearly not the... You know, Mike, one of the things that I can't, when I hear this, I want to think if he was that smart, he would have had the sheath attached to his belt. So the possibility of leaving it there would not have existed, you know? And you know, like I know, we've ca I ca I've carried a gun for over 30 years. And I would never carry my gun unless it's attached to my belt because then you know it's not going anywhere. And if you ever take your gun out, you know that it's you could put it right back into the holster. The same thing with this knife. If it was attached to his belt, there would have been no possibility to leave it there. That's right. That's right. Uh, and the, the criminologist really gives Brian Koberg too much credit. He, he says he's highly skilled. He's not highly skilled. 
He's a he's a graduate student in a graduate course teaching. He's a teacher's assistant. He's learning about criminal theory, about mass murders and uh, narcissism and uh, um, psychopaths and soci sociopathy and things like that. Then he's not learning how to how to commit a homicide and avoid getting arrested. You know, 101. Uh, they're giving him way too much credit. Yeah. When the uh, criminal criminologist raises the word staging, now we all know what staging is. I'll just explain it to the uh, to the audience. A lot of times, a crime scene will be staged if someone's going to commit a murder and they want to try to make it look like a suicide, and they'll try to put it in place so it looks like maybe put the gun mm -hmm. in the decedent's hand, uh, you know that type of thing. Or another way is to stage a robbery to make to make it look like there was a forced entry. Can you think of a couple more Mike uh, staging possibities? Yeah, um, if some if you strangled someone to death. And then you do what you do is you take a piece of rope, put it around their neck and attach it to a pipe or something like that. You know, that sort of thing. Um, you make it look like you say, look like a burglary. Somebody's breaking in. Um, uh, if, if, if you think it's if you poison them and uh, you know, with some sort of narcotics, you might somehow, if you can, fake a, a suicide note. Things like that, um, you know, uh, and throw people off by using their cell phones to text message people to say to, to throw off the time of death so that uh, it looks like it wasn't it didn't happen when it did. Uh, you know, there's a million different variations. You've seen a lot more of that than I have. But in the same vein, uh, Mike, that one item does not make a staging. No. In my mind, no. leaving a knife sheath does not equal a staging. No. If you're going to try to stage, you're going to do numerous things, uh, multiple things to try to make it look like something other than what it is. So, again, leaving a knife sheath, I believe this was a huge mistake. And based on the fact that he was in a frenzy, he, he killed two people and the knife sheath he left there wasn't in his mind. And then he went downstairs and killed two more people. And then he so got he, the hell out of there. Exactly. He got the hell out of he wasn't even thinking about that sheath. No. So I don't let's let's continue with this. And I just don't really get it that this uh, criminologist is uh, is raising this specter here. The brightest criminal. We know that. But according to the criminal affidavit, the tan leather knife sheath was discovered laying on the bed next to Madison Mojan's right side. The Idaho State Lab later located a single source of male DNA left on the button snap. The knife itself is missing. And with Koberger said to be an obsessive compulsive with other things like food, one imagines cleanliness in general, it's likely he hid the knife somewhere else after committing the murders, someplace where the blood wouldn't contaminate his clothes. They linked the knife to Koberger through the DNA recovered from Trash's family's home in Pennsylvania. So let's talk this through with Jesse Weber, anchor and host on the Law and Crime Network, who has been. I, I think he means they linked the sheath because they never yeah. found the knife. Uh, he, he made a little bit of a, a blurb there. But so they linked the sheath based, based through um, the DNA. Closely following the story. Jesse, what do you make of the theory? I think it makes no sense. And so all due respect, no sense. And I'll explain why. First of all, this K-Bar USMC knife, I can go on Mike, we finally have someone from TV that agrees with us or that we agree with them because usually right. we're on the opposite specter of what they're saying. They're going right for it.
And uh, that's why I like Dan Abrams and I like this guy too. And not just, I've heard him say other stuff on the, uh, the law and crime network that I didn't totally agree with, but I think on this, they're right on. And I, I know a lot of folks in the chat, they want to believe that he planted this knife sheath. Mm -hmm. And again, you can believe whatever you want, but we're just uh, putting our two cents in. Yeah. Or two New York cents. Yeah. It's okay. Amazon right now. I can go on uh, kbar.com right now. I could buy it. This is not something that is exclusive to the military. And without any other evidence left there pointing to a member of the military, it makes no sense that he would think, or whoever the suspect is, that the police would immediately think military. And top of all this, the biggest point, I'm going to take the risk of leaving a piece of evidence that might have my DNA on it, and we all saw that it possibly does, with the idea of maybe the police are going to look at somebody else. I, it makes absolutely, absolutely no sense. And if this really was the motivation, one of the dumbest things I've ever thought. Well, yeah, and, and we know that he made other you know mistakes. But the, the argument goes that he thought he had cleaned the sheath. He thought he had a sort of left a pristine piece of evidence, but he missed the sort of the snap, right? He missed that one spot where his DNA was located. It, it, no, uh, what this seems to me is any case I've covered where someone has left evidence at a crime scene, it's a, it's a slip up, it's a mistake. So people might say, oh, he's so intelligent. You know, how did he not plan for this? If we have no indication Brian Koberger ever did anything like this before, when someone is in the heat of a crime, they're not thinking logically. They could have been in a panic. They could have been afraid. We know that one of the surviving roommates said that he, the suspect walked right past her. A lot of people have been wondering why. If you are in a state of shock after committing this crime, you can't explain everything why they do something or not do something. And, and to, to support your point, which is pretty persuasive, I'm really getting tired of people talking about how smart this guy is, yeah. right? As if he was like the ultimate criminal mastermind who would never have... I mean, he made so many mistakes and so many slip-ups, this idea that, oh, you know, no way he would ever... Right? I mean... They're giving him too much credit. And can we also just address the idea of, well, he's a criminology student, right? <laughs> so I've taken criminology before. I've spoken to criminologists about this. They don't teach you how to commit the perfect crime. They teach you how to understand why crimes are committed. <laughs> Jesse Weber. Interesting, right? And, and Mike, I think we feel the same way uh, about this, that, um, again, people are saying giving him too much credit. He's, he's, he's a PhD student. That does not make him a mastermind in crime. Look, Not police cool. officers, uh, I don't know, I'll try to make this parallel, but they train with firearms and not probably not enough. They go twice a sure. year to shoot. But the, the things that you learn at the firearms range are ingrained in your brain so that when something horrific happens, you can just go back to that mind, the portion and the training, the repetition of the training and pull it out of your brain, and hopefully you'll respond correctly when you get into a deadly physical force situation. This is a killer who decided to kill four people with a knife. He has no training in it. So no. it's all on the spot that he's going to do these things. So to think that he's thinking 10 steps ahead is, to me, ridiculous. And we're going to go over, Mike, just some of the many mistakes he made. And I'll, I'll start, and then we can jump to you. Big, big mistake. He drives right up to the house, and he's caught on the camera. His car is caught on the camera three times and parks behind the house. Right. Is that a mastermind? No. Okay, Mike, you're next. See if you can beat that one. 
uh, he brings his cell phone with him. Uh, and I'm sorry, he, he turns his cell phone off when he's leaving in Washington within his car and turns it back on the moment he returns because we have the, the we know exactly when he turned it on, we turned it off and we have the cameras from what, what uh, Washington State University. So we got him coming and going there. That's too easy. That's too, you know. You don't have any more. That's all you have. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Keep going, Mike. Okay. Well, you know, he uh, he takes he leaves like the the, the sheath. That's that's huge. That's leaves, a huge one. Leaves the DNA, uh, which means he doesn't have gloves on. All right. He leaves a footprint, a bloody footprint, uh, there as he's leaving. He leaves a live uh, witness that he walked right past. You know, um, there's blood on the on the and you can see it in the video of the crime scene. He leaves blood on the uh, going, coming, going uh, on the door in the back. Um, he does that. Um, you know, I mean, that's only just a few right there. And there's plenty more. How about the, on the drive home to Pennsylvania or at his house in Pennsylvania? He starts washing his car at four o'clock in the morning under the eyes of the FBI, who is has him under surveillance. Right. And he right. also takes his garbage from his house in Pennsylvania and throws it into the garbage pails of his neighbors. Is this the actions of a master criminal? No. And then, and then also, if you go back just a little bit before he left for the Christmas break with his father, he didn't clean up the car or think he did it sufficiently enough in Washington, like the next day or two days later, within a couple of days, he, there's actually some partial evidence that they were recovered, including hair, hairs, hair samples off of his carpet. They looked at his carpet, uh, his vacuum cleaner bag, um, all these little things that a, a person, you know, it, who's not a mastermind wouldn't think of. Um, I mentioned to my kids, I was talking to them about this today, and I, I said, look, if Albert Einstein, one of the most brilliant people in the world, E equals MC squared, if he decided to kill someone, he wouldn't be good at it. He would make a, a million mistakes. It, it's not about your IQ. It's about, you know, IQ level. It's about your experience. He had, he had very little to zero experience doing this sort of thing, uh, driving around. One of the funniest things was that he was caught on camera like three times had to make a three-point U-turn. He couldn't park his car. It was It's kind of like pathetic in a way. He he had no idea how to get in and how to get out, even before you commit the, the crime, just to just to get in the egress and ingress, you know? Um, he messed that up. It's just it's just remarkable. You know, Mike, that reminds me also when you when you talk about the car, how about the 12 times he was caught reconning the location? Mm -hmm. And I've heard people trying to make light of that or say, oh, he's allowed to drive by their house. He lives, yeah, he lives 15 or 20 minutes away. How was it that he drove by that house 12 times? I think an attorney would have a hard time convincing anyone that, oh, yes, he was just admiring the neighborhood, you know? Yeah, sure, sure. Does he know anybody uh, in that neighborhood? Is anybody going to vouch for him? Remember, too, he drove by the apartment, uh, the house, at like 9 a.m., about four or five hours after he committed the homicide. What's he doing back there at uh, like 9 a.m. on a Sunday morning? Who's he visiting at 9 a.m.? You know, Mike, that, that's such a great point is that, you know, it's 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 common mostly with serial killers to revisit the murder scene. Other, mm -hmm. other murderers too, I've seen it where 
uh, in Manhattan, the shootings on the street, homicides on the street where the, the purpose in the crowd admiring right. his handiwork, you know, oh, and you would never think like, uh, and that's why I used to make a habit of photographing the crowd uh, for multiple reasons. One right. of them was that the perpetrator could be in the crowd. And number two was that when you did a canvas later on and uh, people's names came up and if they said, oh, I was in New Jersey, oh, I was in Brooklyn. And you say, oh, really? This is you 10 minutes after the crime in the crowd there. And they'd be like, oh, man. Behind the yellow tape. Don't you remember? Right. That's you behind the yellow tape there, uh, you know, with with you, with your buddies. So, you know, there was some little investigative techniques. But I just want to point out also to a lot of folks, and I'm not trying to – you can – you follow true crime, you follow real crime. You have a right to your opinion. You can think whatever you want. And I encourage you to do so. I'm just saying in this case also, we don't know the rest. And I'm sure there are tons more evidence in this case that we don't know about. I always point back to the autopsy. Have we ever been told the results of the autopsy yet? No. We have not. If there is DNA underneath the fingernails of anyone that was murdered in this case, I think case closed. I don't think you can explain that away whatsoever. Right. How do you his do that? Blood smeared on one of the bodies, his blood smeared on the sheets. You know, you don't explain that away. You can explain a hair follicle away saying I was there at a party a month earlier. You know, big deal. How do you explain DNA under the victim's fingernails, your blood on the sheets? You know, no, 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 no. You can, you can try explaining away, but nobody's going to buy that. Not at all. No, no, ab absolutely. And, and you know, again, if his blood is in that crime scene, commingled with the blood mm -hmm. of the victims, I think it's game over also. But, you know, yeah. something I said, I say in the, I, today I said in the chat, there was quite a few people in the chat today not believing the system. And there's a mistrust of the police on a national mm -hmm. level these days, you know, that people don't trust the police. And, you know, that's yeah. that's fine if you don't want well, to trust to deal with that. Sure. As a prosecutor. And, yeah, right. and, and the police. Right. And the prosecutors have to deal with that. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Southwest four by four explorers. Thanks for the one ninety nine super chat. What is your thought? Re? Was there anyone else? Uh, I, I do not think there was anyone else. I think he acted alone. This has the um, all the ear markings of a, a single person doing this. The evidence points to a single person. Look, early on in this investigation, and we'll, we'll, we're going to get into more things in regards to this investigation. Remember, right day one or day two, they were like, this was targeted and personal. That was the, the day after. That was said by the mayor of right. Moscow. And we were like, where the hell did he get that from? How did they know that? And then they had to pull it back the next few days. But one of the things I wanted to say, because specifically Ashley Banfield, is getting information from someone, some mole inside the investigation or moles, maybe even as many as three moles, giving us her information. And she's calling that person or persons someone close to the investigation that's giving her information. So can we really vet that information? It's not coming from the police. It's not coming from the district attorney's office. But some of the very rumors that came out early on in this investigation turned out to be true. They turned out to be true. So someone and maybe multiple people 
in this investigation are talking to maybe their friends in law enforcement? Oh, yeah. Who's the leak? I wouldn't want to be the person who's the leak that gets caught because you're going to have handcuffs put on you, you know? And this is serious. There should not be leaks like this. Um, obviously, someone that knows is leaking, is definitely leaking. Mike, your opinion? Yeah, Ashley Banfield, I mean, we've been critical for some of the things she's done, but she's done some also some really excellent reporting. She's been very accurate. So her sources are probably, you know, definitely bona fide sources, and she knows what she's talking about. Um, and just think, how many homicides have you handled, have you supervised, you've helped in, uh, as from just being on from a uniformed patrol officer to uniformed sergeant, like I was, and you're sitting there and there's emergency medical technicians, there's crime scene photographers, you know, depending on what crime it is, it could be ballistics people, there's, uh, you know, blood spatter pattern evidence, there's a fingerprint people. There's all kinds of people who have some part, play a little bit of part each in the whole entire, getting the whole entire case folder ready for presentation to a, to a, um, a prosecutor and maybe moving on to the grand jury. It's not just the, the uh, arresting officer. It's not just the squad. It's not just Manhattan North, like for in your instance, there's many people from clerks, typists, uh, uh, morgue people, medical examiner people. Everybody's got uh, a, a piece of the evidence that they could possibly leak to, to someone. And uh, so, yeah, there's no way that you can button up um, an, an, an investigation from day one. I find it remarkable that there has been so little uh, given out, information leaking out, and I, I'm happy about that. But there's no way that you can go, have an investigation from start to finish and not have a single leak. No way. No, you're 100% right. Schmitty, thanks for the $5 super chat. Another source to NN said the girls had a Bluetooth speaker. Why is this stuff coming out and the sources unnamed? Because the sources, if they're named, they can get arrested for violating the court order for contempt right. of court. So I appreciate what you're saying. You're right. Why is this stuff coming out? And who is giving this information to News Nation? Uh, very important. But and this stuff could uh, turn out to be extremely important evidence down the road right folks this is um police off the cuff real crime stories if you like real crime stories from a police perspective then you're in the right place we try not to be sensational we try to give you the facts we critique what we hear from the news media using our experience and knowledge as both police detectives sergeants lieutenants captains academics uh, Professor Mike Geary is obviously, he's got a law degree and he's an academic. I taught college for 10 and a half years. I also taught at the NYPD criminal investigation course for about six or seven years. So we basically know what we're talking about, <laughs> I think, you know. And um, so if you're not subscribed to us, go on our YouTube, hit that subscribe button, give us a thumbs up and ring that bell. Share us with your friends, your family, talk to your friends about us, bring them on board the police off the cuff family. We also have a Patreon with three different levels if you want to support us financially. And we have a YouTube channel memberships with count them five different levels. And you can also support us on that. The folks in our chat with the green font, they're part of our YouTube channel membership family. And we really appreciate our subscribers, our fans, our friends. Uh, we like all of that. We love our fans. Uh, 
Uh, anyway, Mike, what I'm going to go to next is Banfield talks about last night the contamination of the crime scene. And obviously, this case from minute one, well, not minute one, from once the police became involved, it was videotaped from the outside. So everyone going in and out of that building was was on tape, whether it was television or the district attorney's office, they were videotaping to see how many people were going in and out of that crime scene. We've spoke about numerous times, and Mike, you're probably uh, more qualified to talk about this than even me, but Locard, Dr. Edmund Locard's principle of exchange, and that has to do with evidence and the cross-contamination of evidence. And the, and the I'm not going to call it a theory because Ed Wallace would kill me, the <laughs> principle of right. exchange, how that if you're a human being and you go into a crime scene, you bring something from your body or from your clothing and you deposit that into that crime scene. And at the same time, when you leave that crime scene, you're taking something from that crime scene and bringing it out with you. And that's why law enforcement is supposed to be wearing something called PPE, and it stands for personal protection equipment. And part of that is usually a Tyvek suit, which protects your clothing from pathogens, from blood, from all kinds of diseases. It's supposed to be wearing booties on your shoes. So God forbid you don't bring home blood and diseases to your family. And then when you're done processing that crime scene, those things are supposed to be thrown out uh, in in a container that has cannot possibly contaminate any of the evidence. But having said that, when officers respond to a crime scene, the number one cardinal rule is in this homicide scene is the protection of life. So the crime scene has to be basically sacrificed for the purpose of saving someone's life or potentially seeing if there's anyone alive. Part two yeah. of that is to secure that scene in a way that is the perpetrator on the scene? Is the scene safe? Is there any family members on the scene? So that is part two. And three, of course, is to protect the integrity of that crime scene. So there's two things that come before the integrity of the crime scene, the protection of life and the securing of that scene to make it safe. And then part three is, of course, the integrity of the crime scene. Mike, thoughts? Yeah. You know, from years on patrol, same thing with me. Um, you get these calls, 911 calls, persons, especially like you're out on the street, person stabbed or shot out in the street. Uh, you, it, It's filthy from the first second you get there. If the person, you don't know, you're not a doctor. I don't make the call. I have to see if that person's alive. Even if they're shot in the head and they look like they're going out, I have to go there. I'm going to I am absolutely going to have my footprint for my shoe somewhere on that crime scene later on when the detectives come and they start to do their investigation. Cause I'm just there preliminarily as a patrol officer or a patrol sergeant. It's my, it's my 911 call. I have to handle it. So there's absolutely going to be some little bit of contamination. Uh, this happens outdoors. It happens indoors. And in this case, it was all indoors, but the call came over as a, uh, a person who was like unconscious. And when the cops went there, I'm sure they absolutely walked through that house, of course. And they had to check out each and every person to see if they were alive. There's gonna, of course, there's gonna be a tiny little bit of contamination. Is that going to change the um, 
the DNA that is collected? No. Is that going to change the fingerprints that are connected? No. Uh, except maybe if, the, if an officer says, you know, I, I put my hands on a particular spot to kneel down to see if the person was still breathing, you know, that sort of thing. But it, there's no, it's not going to be irretrievable contamination to the, uh, to the point where it is contaminating blood evidence, it's contaminating DNA evidence, it's contaminating, um, you know, blood spatter pattern evidence, uh, you know, things like that. Uh, people like to think that, you know, if the police make one mistake, um, that it's going to destroy all the evidence. And, and no, that never happens. That, that never happens. And I remember when we were in the academy, and I remember, Billy, you know, the two in the academy, they always told you when you get there, and they start, if you get there and their the detectives are there taking pictures, make sure your hands are in your pockets so that, so that nobody can accuse you of touching things unnecessarily. But right. the fact is, you have to touch the victim. You have to it's investigate to see if they are still possibly breathing. You have to see, go around and see if there's anybody else. What happens if someone is in a home or some sort of large apartment and they're, and they're dying? You don't know if the perpetrator is still on the scene. You, your life may be in danger. You know, you're, there's all kinds of dynamics that are going on. It's not like you see on, on like I say, I always talk about the Agatha Christie kind of thing where this is pristine crime scene and the person's lying there and the Scotland Yard detectives there. No, that's not the way this stuff happens. And yeah, there's the crime scenes are a very busy place. Um, but the very first our response is not with the Tyvek suits and the personal protection equipment. It's the patrol cops, patrol sergeant going there um, and they have to go through that crime scene. And there's no problem with that whatsoever in 99.9% .9 of the cases. Exactly, Mike. Very well said. Lula Morocco, great question. Bill, the question he asked when arrested, anyone else arrested, is it in the same vein as the sheath? Get it? Intentional? This is connected to behavior. You know something, Lula? I agree with you. I think he did say that to throw off the investigation? Or is there a small possibility that someone helped him get rid of get rid of the bloody clothing or something like that? Or someone even unintentionally didn't know what they were doing and, and helped him do something? But Lou, I think I would more or less agree with you that that statement probably was said to throw off the investigation. And one thing people have asked me, after he said this, the police, of course, would have tried to say, you know, we'd like to uh, to talk to you, but first we're going to have to read your Miranda. You know, you have the right to remain silent, all that stuff. And he invoked counsel immediately. So many people in the chat don't understand that. Once he invokes counsel, it's over. There's no more questioning. The law enforcement's done. They cannot question him anymore. And people keep asking, oh, why didn't they keep trying to question him? Because <laughs> they're not allowed to. That's it. Definitely he not. invoked counsel. The, it's, the end, it's the end of question. But, Lou, thank you very much. That's a great, great, great point. Good one. You know, now we're going to go. I'm going to play a little bit of Banfield, and she talks about the contamination of the crime scene. She actually does a pretty good job here. Uh, let's play some of this. If you've ever been at a crime scene early, early, early in the situation, it can be a little frantic, it can be a little chaotic, mm -hmm. and there can be survivors, people who are injured, people who need saving. There can also be bad guys still lurking either in the crime scene or around the crime scene. And for that reason, there are priorities. Right? Priority is 
we got to make sure people are safe. We got to get people out of there. We got to make sure someone isn't going to be further harmed, hurt, or die. Priority one. Priority two is we got to catch the guy, right? Priority three is preserve the evidence. That's just the way it goes. And that should be the way it goes, right? You got to save people first. And then you got to catch the guy second to save more people. Sorry, folks. Sometimes this is freezing up here, and, uh, and it'll it'll come right back on. I hope. But she hit it right on the head. Uh, that's what we were talking then you about. You got to make sure if you yeah. don't have the guy, you eventually get the guy, and you keep the guy behind bars, preserving the evidence. So, with that said, I got a little bit more exclusive reporting. I want to give your way. It's important you have that context. Um, and again, this comes from sources sourcing close to the investigation that. The first responders who responded to see that she keeps talking about and uh, myself i have look she's a reporter she's in a different category but i have a problem with people close to the investigation feeding information to the press that's not okay your opinion mike yeah uh, especially when the person who's giving the information you know, they have just one little piece of information. And if you if you think that someone who's even a, a legitimate, accurate piece of information leaked, and if it's leaked and it's taken out of context for, for what the little piece is in terms of the whole puzzle, people can start going into, you know, um, conspiracy theories and all, all kinds of stuff. And they start going down this road, which makes no sense. Um, and you start to... Um, go go down go down a road or go down a rabbit hole as they say and you you end up so far away from what's actually likely to have happened most times as you and i know the the you know from point a to point b it's not always a straight line but it's it's what most obvious to us as police uh, with our experience think is going to happen or think happened and when somebody leaks a piece of information it's not in in context um people start to jump and hypothesize and it doesn't do the public any good at all. Well, you know, Mike, sometimes in a homicide investigation, in the very beginning, you, you may not have the direction, the mm -hmm. correct direction. Right. And it can take different turns. And that's important to realize that. And the other thing, there's different talent levels and different knowledge levels of police personnel that respond to the scene. I remember when I was a patrol cop, I didn't know what the hell the detectives were doing. I was like, oh, why are they doing that? Why did they wrap their hands in paper bags? You know, why did why are they doing this? Oh, who's that that's flipping the body over? You know? And of course, I would years later, of course, learn all this stuff in that, you know, crime scene is supposed to take photographs and keep the scene pristine as it was when the crime happened. And they take pictures and all that stuff. Now they use lasers and measurements and all this stuff. And then there's a secondary group of people who are investigators that do the forensic examination of the body. And they're called medical legal investigators, i.e. Barbara Butcher, the famous Barbara Butcher, who is the uh, who was the chief of staff of the New York City Office of the Chief Medical Examiner. And they have numerous protocols that they take with every body, including the examination of the body on the scene, taking the body's temperature, looking at the eyes, you know, all kinds of things that they do. And they take notes, but they don't touch the bodies 
till after crime scene is done with the scene. Yeah, everybody's got their part to play. Everybody's got their standardized protocols. So, And if you follow the standardized protocols that have been followed for years, you're going to get a level of expertise and that's going to hold up in court because that's what it's all about is preserving the evidence, getting it right, because you only have one shot at it. You get it right. You present it in, in court because you do. The, the prosecutor has to prove beyond a reasonable doubt each and every element of the crime. It's it's very busy. It's not haphazard. It is an absolute like, as you say, an order. One, someone goes first, someone goes second. You got patrol people, you got the detectives, you got the the crime scene photographers, you got people from the ME's office. Everybody has their uh, job, but they do it in a particular order because that's the uh, protocol that it that works. Absolutely, Fuzzy Doxy, thank you for the nine ninety nine super chat, and thank you for your appreciation of myself and Mike uh, presenting this information. One of the the, the organizations or the units that definitely destroy the crime scene but they have every right to are emts remember i spoke <laughs> about no i mean they throw gloves all over the place yeah, they're, yeah, trying yeah. To, they're trying to see if they can save mm -hmm. you know with this case they would still have to respond to the scene to pronounce each and every yes. person on the scene dead that's the job of ems or emts and then they would say to the detectives pronounced dead at such and such a time yeah. And that's important, again, for months, years later, if this case goes to court, as this case un undoubtedly will. But EMS, you know, they're trying to, as we said, the number one most important thing is the protection of life. And once that is no longer an option because the people are dead, then EMS pronounces those people dead and they get the, the heck out of there. 1122 King Road um, on that horrible overnight morning uh, incident uh, in November, November 13th, they were not wearing protective footwear, booties, right? Probably normal. If you think about what first responders do, they save lives. They don't go in to investigate crime scenes. They go in to save lives and they're in a hurry. And evidence gathering and preservation is not their bailiwick, just isn't. They save lives. And so when the first responders, according to our sourcing. Uh, you know, I can attest to that. When I would respond to a crime scene, I didn't carry a Tyvek suit with me or booties. I probably should have, because I could tell you that I've walked through some heinous pools of blood and coagulated blood and all kinds of nasty stuff. But then when crime scene who is a separate unit of the NYPD that's part of the detective bureau, they show up, they have all those great tools. They have Tyvek suits and they have booties and they would insist, Sarge, could you put on this Tyvek suit? And you could, I, I had no problem. I just didn't have that equipment myself, you know? And I had, believe me, I had no problem putting that out, uh, putting that on to protect my clothing. Cause I, do I want to bring this stuff home to my family? No, absolutely not. So, yeah, I had no problem doing that. But this is what Ashley Benfield's talking about. And she's 100% correct. But Absolutely. what she's getting to, can this also be used against us in the court of law? I'm going to let you answer that, oh. Attorney Geary. Okay. Yeah. Um, uh, a, a defense attorney is going to try to use, again, uh, they have to zealously advocate for their client. They're going to use each and every uh, mistake uh, and protocol that's been made 
um, by anyone from the first responding uniformed police officers to the EMTs uh, to e everyone. And they'll make hay about that, that, you know, the uh, isn't it true the paramedics went in there without Tyvek suits on? Of course. Isn't it obvious? Uh, because that's what they do. Uh, same thing with the police. Um, I remember in the 4-6, we, we didn't even have rubber gloves. We'd borrow rubber gloves uh, from the EMTs when we'd see them. Hey, do you got a pair of rubber gloves? I used my rubber gloves this morning. I need another pair. And they throw you a couple of pairs of rubber gloves. We didn't even have crime scene tape because we'd run out of crime scene tape. We put, we put there were so many crime scenes, you had no more oh, tape left. <laughs> it was terrible because, you know, you just think about it. We're, we're putting uh, garbage cans out around the body. We're putting... Um, you know, uh, traffic cones around a body. We're parking our cars up on, on the on the sidewalk to block people from walking across the crime scene because New Yorkers will walk right across the crime scene. They don't care. Um, and, and, and just to get the basic gloves. So obviously I'm kneeling down. I'm the patrol sergeant. I'm the patrol officer. Um, I'm there with the with the EMT. I'm probably there before them. Um, I'm touching the body. I'm looking at the body. I'm looking over it. If it looks like the body's been dead for a while, I'm not going to touch it. But if it looks like the person is still possibly have some sort of life, I'm going to check the, uh, the neck, see if there's any sort of blood pressure. Um, but yeah, that's, I mean, a dis defense attorney is going to make hay about it. But um, I hope that the people on the jury use their common sense and say, well, Obviously, they're not going to be doing the Tyvek suit thing. You're not going to see uniformed officers running around in Tyvek suits and booties. You can't work like that, you know, <laughs> on the street. You can't, you know. Exactly. Rummy, thank you for the 999 Super Chat. Have you ever known there to be a series of murders working in tandem? Thanks so much. In 1990, um, it was either 1990 into 91, New York City had... 2200 almost 2300 murders crazy and most of them because of the track the crack wars were drug related so many of them were like organized hits you mm -hmm. know teams of shooters coming from in this a lot of these cases from the Dominican Republic because they were fighting over corners in Washington Heights so there was a hell of a lot of that I was at the time I was in the 2-4 that had its own little narcotics war going on and it's the same type of thing. There were organized shooters that would go out to, you know, they were fighting over corners. So, yes, Romy, I hope I answered your question in that way, because most of what we've seen. And, you know, when people talk about, oh, you know, only 60 percent of the murders are solved every year nationally. Well, 40 percent of them, you know, they're like you need cooperation to solve a murder. You really do. So probably 40% of them are the criminal trade killing each other. So they're not going to cooperate in the investigation when it's a criminal killing another criminal. So that's why those cases are so, so difficult to solve. And it's, look, law enforcement tries as hard as they can to solve those cases. But without cooperation, it is nearly impossible to solve a murder. You really do need cooperation. Pamela, thank you so much for the super sticker, the $2 super sticker. Guys, we appreciate you. Hula Shack, love that. Uh, thank you for the $20 super chat. Thank you both for all you do for us. Thank you. And guys, we, I mean, our channel is growing. Uh, I, Phil Grimaldi uh, comes on as a co-host. He's a retired NYPD detective. I just, Mike, I used to teach with at a college years ago and I said, you know something? let me see what Mike's doing, you know? Yeah. And I gave him a call and 
he's he took to this like uh, you know a duck to water. So uh, it's great to have Mike on, and it's good to have other people's opinions. And I find this stuff so interesting. This is a really one hell of an interesting case. It's just like. Uh, it's unbelievable uh, case. And there's so many things that we can talk about and teach the audience about based on our experience. Uh, Lula Morocco, thank you so much for the $10 super chat. Thank you for your great inquisitive question. I really appreciate that. Uh, good. I, I got to know. Thank you for the $2 super chat. Why not a trial for each death? You know something? There is something called the, when they sever cases. Right. Usually the severing, I'm going to have Mike explain this to you because he's an attorney, explain it to you much better than me. Want to explain that, Mike? Yeah, real quick. Yeah, uh, we, we talked about this the other a uh, couple weeks ago uh, because you, another viewer asked that question. It's a great question uh, because it was, you know, why wouldn't the prosecutor want to have four separate trials? Because if Kohlberger beats one rap, they still have the ability to try to try him three more times. No one wants that. First of all, uh, you have one crime scene. All right. There's four homicides, one crime scene. The uh, the facts of the scene are all compact and you'd have four trials and they would have other than the homicide, the body, you'd have four sets of identical trials except for just the body. So you're actually trying the person four times for almost the exact same crime. Uh, the defense doesn't want to do that. They want only the prosecutor to have one shot at the apple. The, the prosecutors don't want that because there's no way that a judge would allow them to do it. And they'd have to prepare for four trials. And it's all the same evidence. A judge wouldn't allow that. And uh, law would, state law would not allow that. There's the double jeopardy clause in the Idaho Constitution and in the federal Constitution. Uh, yeah, there's no possible way that that would pass the, uh, the double jeopardy clause. And so it would be considered four separate trials for 99.999%, this exact same offense. It's a great question. And it's, uh, but no, definitely not. Nobody wants that sort of thing. Definitely not. Mike, I'm so glad I stayed in my lane and I didn't try to explain <laughs> that. You, you did a hell of a much better job than I could have ever done. Jeannie Nash, <laughs> you did a great job. Jeannie Nash, thanks for the $2 super chat. Daddy Crab. Uh, thanks for the 499 super chat. As a retired firefighter, it would seem you'd have to treat a crime scene like hazmat, slow and easy with PPE. Daddy Crab, under the best circumstances, you are 100% right. But as um, Ashley Banfield was talking, you're not gonna you're not gonna not go into a fire because it's dangerous. In the same way that we have to go into a crime scene without proper protection equipment, because there could still be someone alive. And we have to help that person who potentially could still be alive. And, and if the bad guy could still be in there and we got to go in there and get the bad guy, we can't say, oh, look, Mike and I were all 9-11 first responders. Did we say we're not going to go onto that toxic ground, which all of us got sick from it? You know, I don't know anyone. Well, a couple of people, but almost 80, 90 percent of the people that responded to 9-11 have some kind of sickness from it, you know some more serious than others. So we didn't question. We took an oath. We raised our right hand and we promised, you know, to uh, support the constitution of the state of New York and to support the constitution of the United States of America. And part of that is to risk our life to save people. And we wouldn't think of not doing that. 
you know, and so Daddy Crab, great question. And I'm sure as a firefighter, uh, you've been in those situations too. Uh, you guys, you know, this is so really interesting to us to, and I'm glad, uh, you know, as I said, I stayed in my lane because Mike explained that way better than I could have ever explained it. And uh, let's get back to Ashley Banfield and hear what she has to say. Got to the house. They encountered a chaotic situation and were unclear as to exactly. Again, we're having a little, uh, it's uh, the Wi-Fi, it's buffering, I guess you could say. So what she's really talking about, again, is the, uh, the crime scene and the crime scene keeping it pristine again. And the, the major point of that, of course, is that, um, you know, the, the defense is going to, to use that. Who might be still alive there we or go. whether there was a danger still lurking. And they went in fast. And for that reason, they tracked snow melting chemicals in from the driveway and parking lot into the home and thereby potentially disrupted the retrieval of footprint evidence. So I want to bring in Larry Koblinski, who is a forensic scientist, professor emeritus of forensic science at John Jay College of Criminal Justice, and one of the smartest guys I work with on a typical uh, day in, in this business. Okay, Doc, so this is not uncommon. As sad and frustrating as it feels, this is kind of Tuesday in, in, in crime fighting um, and the, the processing of a scene, isn't it? Absolutely. Ashley, you, you explained it very, very clearly and very well. Uh, the first responders are usually police. You know, he's right. She did. Yes. She really did explain it very well. Police officers or firefighters or EMTs, uh, and they're trained to save lives, uh, to protect the living, uh, and to uh, make sure that if people need medical help, they get it. They're not trained to do crime scene work. They don't come with the paraphernalia that crime scene people have, like the booties that you described, the head protection. Uh, the gloves that they wear, or the Tyvek uh, protective outfits that crime scene people use. Uh, so they're not really there to, um, you know, to do crime scene work. Uh, however, however, the first responder is really supposed to cordon off the scene and protect it from unauthorized entry. Now, this is a big, big problem of people that go into a crime scene because they're, they're police officers. They're you know, uh, the professor from John Jay, uh, Kobolinski, he hit it right on the head. And it's a big problem because in all police departments, there's people of rank, right? So guarding the crime scene is a police officer. Now, this police officer has to tell the chief, 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 you can't go into that crime scene. You think maybe he's a little bit intimidated to tell the chief you know, even the word the chief, it gives you that exalted position. You know, he has this exalted thing. Mary Michael, thank you so much for the 499 Super Chat. Hello, Sergeant Bill and Professor Geary. Was just typing, Professor Geary is a great asset to the team due to his legal background, and you beat me to it. Great work. Thank you, Mary Michael. We really appreciate it. So it's, it's very tough. And, you know, I've had crime scenes, homicide crime scenes, where – People from other units wanted to come into it. We know what? Why do you need to come in here? Where are you from? Gang? The the murder victim's ninety years old. I assure you, he's not in a gang. You know, and <laughs> we have to. I turn him away, and you know they.
feel bad because really they wanted to buff out and see the crime scene. But guess what? If you buff out, you're going to contaminate the crime scene and you're not coming in. Sorry, you know. Billy, can I tell you just a quick quick anecdote? Go ahead. Yeah. You know, we had this guy that was killed in the park, uh, Van Cortland Park. Uh, it was a, uh, a gang gang rub out, like a mafia rub out. And uh, so my partner and I get the call. We go there. We find the body in the park. We do the cordoning off. The detectives come from the uh, 5 precinct. They come from um, the uh, the from the borough. And then there's one. And so I'm there. I make I got my little memo book out and I'm getting everybody's name. And it's one one detective just walks through, picks up the uh, the tape, walks through and starts looking around. I'm like, excuse me, uh, detective, what's your name? And he goes, I'm Chief Chicatelli. I'm like, okay, <laughs> we're the chief of the Bronx detectives. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. your crime scene chief, go right ahead. No problem. But, but you know something, Mike? He shouldn't really even be walking through there. He really yeah. shouldn't. But, you know, as you know, you're not going to tell the chief of Bronx detectives, hey, chief, uh, hey, detective, I'm chief so-and-so, you know, and you're like, oh. oh not, not police officer, oh, Mike. Maron, Maron, because he's Italian, you said that, right? <laughs> I'm Let's play kidding. a little bit more of uh, Larry Koberger here. High-level administrators, you know, they want to see what's going on. They're curious. And the fact of the matter is, the more people you have in the scene, the more likely you're going to have contamination. Not just from the first responders, but from... I said Larry Koberger. I meant Larry, Dr. Larry Kobolinski. I'm sorry. I, there was a... You can, you can... What is it called? Word salad? I'm yes. Sorry. <laughs> people that work in the police department or people in the press, everybody wants to know what's going on. Uh, so in fact, you limit the number of people that go into a crime scene, you document who goes in, who goes out, and the timing for these events that take place. And the most important thing is that the first responders notify the people that have to be there to do the investigation, the evidence collection team the detectives, maybe the district attorney. Uh, that is really the job of a first responder. Once the evidence collection team comes in, they know how to do it right. Of course, they sometimes yeah. are confronted, as you pointed out, with contamination, contaminated evidence. But it's... You know, Mike, one of the biggest things in, in the O.J. Simpson case was um, the contamination of evidence. And I always, I, I used to think of this all the time because um, evidence that needs, like biological evidence, needs to go into paper bags. Yeah. Paper bags, right? Not plastic bags, paper bags. So the NYPD back in the day in its infinite wisdom, they didn't have these paper bags available for the supervisor's car or for the patrol cars no. you go into a bodega and get a paper bag and i was just like imagine the defense attorney knew where that paper bag came from <laughs> it was oh yeah it was a uh, el ranchino bodega right. oh really is that on the police department's equipment list that you get your paper bags for crime and i mean it was right it was corner. lunacy right? yeah. and you know i'm telling the truth right i don't know if the the nypd has addressed that oh. now but we used to just go grab a paper bag from a bodega. And like crime scene, of course, they have their own paper bags because if they have to wrap the hands of the deceased in paper bags to preserve DNA evidence underneath the fingernails, they have to have pristine 
paper bags that are kept in a location where they don't get contaminated because attorneys could say, detective so-and-so, where are those paper bags stored? Uh, in the trunk of the RMP. And what else do you put in that trunk of the Boom. <laughs> they just destroyed the evidence right there. Yeah. That's a, that's a problem, and that's an everyday problem, uh, but that's the reality of, of con confronting, you know, big city crime and homicides in, in a department like New York City. Uh, smaller departments, uh, I remember a friend of mine who moved from the 3-4 precinct, he moved up to a, a department in Rockland County. He had an inflatable life raft in his in his trunk of his car with with firefighting equipment and all kinds of stuff and i said you know in a three four because i was in the four six at the time i said you open up the trunk you're lucky if you have a spare tire you know and he's got enough for like uh, to equip you know uh the d-day landings in his trunk because they don't use the equipment <laughs> it's so, just amazing you know you know mike someone it's funny when we use these copisms or the things we've been trained to say some folks in the chat are saying, what the hell is a bodega? And, and I'm like, that's great, because we just say it as a matter of fact. Right, right, right. Basically, a bodega is a delicatessen, you know. But in the, in the hood, basically almost all bodegas are, are his, owned by Hispanic people, and they cater to Hispanic neighborhoods. And we just say it, you know, like we're part of the hood, you know, the bodega. Right. So uh, that's what it is. Magical Mary, thank you so much for the 1999 Super Chat. Is the one million given by ID Gov to investigate the case being used by both prosecutors and defense since he has a public defender? I think the one million that they probably will need a lot more money to investigate and prosecute this case goes to the prosecution. Probably the legal aid money comes from another area. It does come from our tax dollars, but I'm, I don't think they're going to mesh that money for the prosecution and the defense. I think they come from different different areas. Mike, maybe you could speak upon that again. You're probably more knowledgeable. Uh, than I think I am the about that. Uh, yeah, I think the public defender's office has their budget, and they might have you know there might be money left over every year. If they're not, they go over budget. But they, that's going to be a separate allowance from the county, most likely the county, the Lata County, and um, they're probably in this kind of case, it's going to blow your budget. This is because they're going to need uh, as much help as they possibly can to put up a war room. And to put up a uh, a squad of uh, retired detectives to go out and do the investigations, but it, in the end, it's coming from the it's coming from the public, the taxpayer. You know, one hundred percent. You know, last night we spoke about, and, and again, Banfield has these um, sources close to the investigation, and she was talking about how uh, Brian Koberger was um, was on the hot seat, basically from September to October in regards to his uh, TA position, his teaching assistant position, which was connected to his financing for his PhD program, which was connected probably to the financing of the apartment he had in order to live at the, in the vicinity of Washington State University to complete his PhD. Many people or some people think that this was the catalyst that may have driven him to commit these murders. A lot of people were saying, oh, but he wasn't officially fired until December. That's true, but his world started mm -hmm. to fall apart in September and October. Right. And as you know, the murders occurred on, occurred on November 13th. Mike, you want to uh, add to that a little bit? Yeah, uh, I went over the timeline uh, today and uh, from the time he got there, uh, he got there in late August in 
classes start right around Labor Day, maybe right after Labor Day. Um, and within less than four weeks, he then already he then had to report to uh, Professor Snyder, who was in charge uh, of, you know, who, who he was working for, TAing for. And Professor Snyder had to speak to him about his behavior. Um, a couple of weeks later, he had to speak to him again about his behavior. And it appears that um, most of the complaints about his behavior in the classroom had to deal with his very dismissive uh, attitude towards mostly the female students, not so much the male students. Uh, he was dismissive of their ideas. Um, at one point, uh, supposedly, he was harassing a female and talking to her outside and actually as she was walking to her car. So from he didn't have much of a honeymoon phase with the students right at, within the four week mark. He, they were complaining about him. He had a, a confrontation with his uh, what they called a, a confrontation with his professor. He had another confrontation with the professor a couple of weeks later. Uh, the head of the, of the whole entire program put him on like a probation uh, probationary period where he had to straighten out his act and become more professional. And uh, because not only is he supposed to be teaching like an adjunct, uh, you know, doing the, doing the TAing, but he also is supposed to grow and develop in terms of his ability to actually teach and do research. Um, so by the end of the end of October, he was already on, in hot water on probation with these, uh, with the, it was the authorities that be in Washington state, things were not going well for him. Things were kind of, were kind of crashing down. And um, from that point on where he had that probation plan where they basically told him, straighten your butt out or you're out of here. Um, from that point to the time of the murders is two weeks. And within those two weeks, two, two to two and a half weeks, um, you know, you can hypothesize that he, he realized, you know, what was his problems were in his mind were probably related to his inability to connect socially with males and females, but especially with females. And he might have thought that because of the females complaining that, you know, he was going to get kicked out of uh, Washington State and there would be there would go his dream of being a PhD, you know, criminologist. That's a theory, you know, it's one, that's a working theory at this point. Well, that uh, people are saying they think that that could have been the reason his world was falling apart. But look, plenty of people have really huge disappointments and failures in life and they don't go kill for right. people. Right, exactly. You know? exactly. Legal Eagle, if found guilty, is it possible for a prohibiting order to be placed on him not to write about his crime in any format. Well, Legal Eagle in the state of New York, and I don't know if Idaho has it, there's something called the Son of Sam laws. Yes. And the Son of Sam laws prohibit any criminal to benefit monetarily from their crime. And if they do write a book or do something of that nature, the money goes to the victims. And that was passed after the Son of Sam murders, which occurred I believe it was 1977, maybe. Yes, the summer uh, of 77. Summer of 77. I was, uh, wow, I graduated high school in 75. So uh, yeah. I was about 19 or 20 years old uh, back then. So when some of you people in the chat say, Bill, did you work on that case? <laughs> uh, no, Teddy Roosevelt was police commissioner, and I wasn't uh, I wasn't on the job at that point. I, but, um, 
Yeah, so that's the son of Sam Rose, but great question. No, good question. No one would ever, ever want any killer to benefit by their crime, by writing books. And it seems like some of these people become uh, mini celebrities. Let me play a little bit of this with Banfield. Like losing his job as a teaching assistant at Washington State University. And then with that, losing your funding for the doctoral studies program you're in in the school. Because it appears right now that that's what happened. We now have sources with direct knowledge of the termination letter that was sent to Brian Koberger. And tonight I wanna to read the letter to you in full. Uh, the letter is dated uh, December the 19th, 2022, starts this way. Um, Mr. Koberger, I am writing this letter to formally inform you of the termination of your teaching assistantship with the Department of Criminal Justice and Criminology, effective December 31st, 2022. In keeping with the WSU Graduate Student Handbook, chapters 9G2, remember that, and 12E3, remember that, below is the list of events that led to you being deficient on the following contingency clause of your funding. Quote, maintaining satisfactory progress in fulfilling assistantship service requirements and duties. On September 23rd, 2022, you had an I'm going to remove that. So basically his world was falling apart yeah. and yeah. he was, uh, he was going to, he was going to lose his, his TA position. Mm -hmm. He was going to lose the funding for his PhD and that was connected to his apartment. So the argument is, is that the event that was the catalyst to these four murders? And I would argue that, you know, it very well could be, and I'm not saying it's not, but, I would just like to argue that many people have huge disappointments in their life and they don't kill four people. So whether this was the catalyst that led him to do this horrific crime, you know, can be argued. Right. Yeah. He had a third uh, blowout with this professor. He had the two early on in the semester. He was put on probation with a plan to improve. He didn't. Uh, the homicides occur then in November 13th, December 9th, he has another blowout, a third blowout. He's not, he's not a suspect at this point, or maybe, you know, he is, we're not exactly sure what day he became a suspect, but uh, a week and a half after the murders, he has another blowout with the, uh, uh, with his supervisor, uh, Professor Snyder. And then at the very end of the semester, they, uh, every, everybody got together, all the, the, pro, um, the professors, and that's on the 19th is when they formally decided to dismiss him. But, um, yeah, we talked about this earlier a, a couple of weeks ago. And, and, you know, the motive, you want to know the motive and see if it doesn't make any sort of sense. And we really opine that the, the, the motive, if known, if we ever figured out what it was or he ever actually explained it, would be so uh, trivial to be unsatisfactory. And, uh, and if, if this is true, if this working theory is true, as you say, Billy, this, this is ridiculous because many people have ma major disappointments more so than this. Um, and they don't hurt anybody. You know, they don't kill anybody. You know, uh, you know, you want to punch a wall, you can punch a wall, you carry on with life. But for him, from his perspective, this is a, a yet another rejection and maybe it was the one, maybe, again, it's totally ridiculous, but maybe it's the one 
that broke the camel's back. And, uh, you know, he saw his life crashing down. He commits the homicides. And then you have the final act where he gets dismissed. It's not satisfactory. It seems trivial. It seems base. It seems ridiculous. But from his world, the world of Kohlberger, looking out from behind his eyes, he might have seen the, the writing on the wall, realizing his world was over. They were going to dismiss him anyway. And he acted out and he symbolically, maybe perhaps in a way, killed the people who were not individually, like he didn't know them, but killed the people who were of a class that was uh, responsible for him actually getting terminated, uh, going to be terminated from his position. Not satisfactory, but maybe that's what it is. Well, Mike, you know, absolutely. If you're uh, unstable psychologically, right? you could need just one thing more to go wrong in your life and you act out in the way that he did. It seems crazy for us to think right. that, but someone that is, again, that is walking that thin line of, uh, you know, of having elusive thoughts and crazy thoughts. And, um, you know, as he said, he sees whites in front of his eyes and that type of stuff. He needed one more thing to go wrong. And this was the one thing. And it wasn't a small thing. No. It was a big, big thing. Folks, if you're looking for a great defense attorney in the New York City metropolitan area, then uh, Joe Murray is your man. Joe Murray's a great defense attorney. He's also a huge supporter of uh, police off the cuff, real crime stories. Joe's a retired NYPD police officer. You can reach Joe on a cell at 718-514-3855 or email him at joe at jmurray-law.com. And he's got a website, jmurray-law.com. Folks, it's amazing how interesting this case is and how fast we're at an hour and 15 minutes, how fast this show has gone. I hope you feel the same way because that would mean a lot to me that you stayed with us this whole time and the show went fast for you too but it did go really fast for us in fact we didn't even get to cover all we wanted to cover but i don't want to go much longer because uh you know you guys got to get up for the, well you don't have to get up but tomorrow this is super bowl sunday eve you know you may have to prepare for it. you got to work out in the morning and get get ready for the game at 6 30 at night anyway this is fascinating as new information comes out it's it, it you know the gag order has is in regards to getting really vetted information out there has hurt a lot but in essence um you know we're still getting information and we're going to report on it Romy thank you so much for the 999 super chat and thank you for joining us I'm seeing a lot of new people in the chat and I'm really thrilled with that folks we've just grown to 45,000 subscribers and we're our next, of course, we're always trying to move up in this. And when I see new people in the chat, I'm really thrilled. Join the Police Off the Cuff Real Crime Stories family. And as we do, whenever we cover this case, we have to mention the families and the deceased in this case, Ethan Chapin, Zaina Canodal, uh, Kaylee Gonsalves, and Madison Mogan. And those are the real victims in this case. And we pray for them when we pray for their families. Mike, final thoughts. Final thoughts. Pray for the families, like you said, they're the they're the true victims in all of this. Uh, well, pray also for the Koberger family because they, they're the worst is even yet to come for them as a family, and they'll have to deal with Brian's actions for the rest of their lives. And um, just be patient and uh, 
keep your fingers crossed that there is that there will be justice in this case. 100%, Mike, you said that very well. And folks, again, you know, you can come to us. We'll give you, tell you the way it really is. And uh, we're not looking to sensationalize it. We're looking to educate and uh, inform. Anyway, thank you so much for tuning in tonight. Have a great day tomorrow and God bless. One episode, just ain't enough.